Our uh, teacher for tonight, Eli Kalfer, Rabbi Eli Kalfer, is, a, is co-founder and executive director of Mechon Hadar. Um, you can look up Mechon Hadar on the internet to learn more about their incredible uh, learning programs in New York and their opportunities for online programs, which I hope you'll talk about tonight. Eli has previously worked as a journalist, a banker, and a corporate fraud investigator, which makes him a perfect person to be a rabbi. <laughs> He's a graduate of Harvard College. He completed his doctorate in liturgy at the Jewish Theological Seminary, where he was also ordained. A Wexner graduate fellow and a wrote fellow, Ellie is a co-founder of Kilat Hadar, and has been named multiple times to Newsweek's list of the top 50 rabbis in America. He was selected as an inaugural Abichai Fellow, and is the author of Empower Judaism, What Independent Minyanim Can Teach Us About Building Vibrant Jewish Communities. We haven't talked about that at all. I don't know if we'll talk about it on this trip. Maybe we'll have to have you back. Maybe we'll get a question in on that. I, my, my last note says, and you can buy his book at the end of this event. However, they all sold out the first night, which teaches you all to please come the first night <laughs> and buy our speaker's books, because that's what happens if you don't. With that, our topic for tonight is, what is it? How to pray what you don't believe, a case study. Welcome to CBI, Rabbi Kaufer. Thanks again for uh, welcoming here to your community, and uh, good to see so many faces from the last few days. Thanks again to Ari for bringing me out here. Uh, I think Ari first spoke to me in 2008. I was living in an old apartment. It was at least seven years ago. So it's a long time coming, and uh, it's really been a pleasure for me. I should say that um, if you walk out of here not knowing what Mechon Adar is, then you'll be in good company with the rest of the Jewish world. Um, when I, I, I'm from Providence, Rhode Island, and my um, my dad is a, uh, he was a longtime pulpit rabbi. I would go home and visit my family. And when I was finally um, a rabbi myself, uh, a, a woman in, in the shul would always ask me, well, which synagogue are you in in New York? And I would say, well, I'm not in a synagogue. I, I run an educational institute called Hadar. People do Jewish study. And she would say, well, how big is the synagogue? Um, <laughs> how many members do you have? So finally. One time I went home and she said, you know, which synagogue are you in New York? And I said, I'm in the largest synagogue in New York. I'm the head rabbi. She was like, that's wonderful. <laughs> so if you forget what Mechon Adar is, just think of it as the largest synagogue in New York. Um, no, really, we're an educational institute. Um, that means that if you are interested in learning um, Jewish texts, uh, Jewish content, you can log on to our website, just Google the word Hadar, H-A-D-A-R, and you'll find it's the first thing that pops up. We knocked Leon T. Hadar off the first list of Google. Um, and uh, I hope, hope you will learn with us. And, and if, if, certainly if you're in New York, there's a lot of programs you can come to in person. Uh, online, you can listen to a lot of podcasts and, uh, and download um, resources. And if you're interested in learning with a chavruta, with a partner, we have this great program called Project Zug, which matches you up with another person Oftentimes in Israel, uh, if you want to do a sort of cross-Atlantic uh, divide, um, and you can learn a whole array of Jewish topics, everything from the Talmud to Leonard Cohen ly lyrics. Um, so it's all there uh, at Hadar. Um, I'm actually, uh, for those who, who uh, have a short memory, I'm going to just pass around um, this sheet where you can sign your name and your email, and then I'll, I'll just email you the information of what I said, because who can remember? Um, There's no pressure. There you go. Okay. Um, 
Okay, tonight we're gonna, we're gonna talk about um, how can I pray what I don't believe? Um, and we're gonna solve all your prayer problems. So if there was one lecture to come to, this is it. Let, let me start um, by asking you, what are some of the, um, the difficulties that um, people sometimes experience with traditional Jewish prayer? If not you, maybe a friend. Yeah, in the back. Gender. Say, say more. It's almost always in the male. Okay, so the, the Hebrew language is a gendered language, and, um, and, and the language itself is, uh, is male as well as many of the images and, and references. Okay. Other difficulties with traditional Jewish prayer, please. I don't speak Hebrew. I can't read Hebrew. Ah, okay. It's in Hebrew. The traditional prayer. So if it's, if it's in Hebrew and you don't understand Hebrew, that's going to be a problem. Although maybe it's better because then you won't know all the things that you don't like. Um, yeah, please. Okay, good. The, the, the reference to enemies and a um, somewhat uncharitable view is actually one of the blessings of the weekday Amida, which is it's actually, it's actually a, um, a euphemism that it's a blessing. It's a curse against, um, well, that's a whole other question, who it's against, um, but, uh, but there's certainly some of that language in Jewish prayer, Aleinu, etc. Other, uh, other things that come to mind? Yeah. There was a, uh, an article in the Times of Saturday Profile on Yuda Etzion who, um, who wanted to rebuild the temple. He took that prayer very seriously. Um, so if you don't take it seriously or you have some problems with that, well, what do you do with, um, with that imagery? Um, sorry, you were... The exclusivity of Israel, that uh, God should protect us to the exclusion of other people. Of Great. The rest of humanity. Okay, Israel, Israel should deserve the protection and to the exclusion of, of humanity, maybe it's some, uh, something that comes out of the prayers. Yeah. Uh, I, I studied Talmud at Chabad, and whenever I ask a question, I get the answer, God said so. And <laughs> it doesn't satisfy me very much, and that is, what is God doing in our prayer? Okay. God said so as the catch-all answer. Um, catch-all answer. Great. Um, and uh, what is our connection to God? How do we experience God in our prayer if it's not as simple as that? Okay. Uh, yeah, please. There seems to be a lot of basically repetition. Uh -huh. Change the words, but we can cut it down by like, you know, Okay, good. There's a lot of... Uh, Even with the <laughs> Are you two related? Um, the, 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 the repetition, it, I would say, there's repetition of prayers, and then there's repetition within prayers, right? I mean, we're going to see tomorrow the Kaddish, but the Kaddish just, um, you know, the, 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 the part of the Kaddish reads, Those all mean the same thing. You could just say, Yitbarach, you're done, right? Yithalal, God's blessed, praise, uh, you know, exalted, sanctified. We can't even come up with enough synonyms in English to translate it. So what's the, um, what's the role of repetition in prayer, and, and, and what would it look like if we didn't have that? 
Um, you can see, we, we could spend all night doing this. And, and uh, I think that um, it's actually kind of amazing that Jews pray at all, given the like, core fundamental, these are big issues. There are even more, but we're not going to get to them all. Um, but we are going to sort of dive into some of the core issues that we raised here tonight. Um, and we're going to do that um, by, uh, uh, by looking at a particular case study. So what, I, what I'm going to do is pass around the source sheet. While the sheet is going around, I'm going to tell you a little story. Um, way back in 1953, there was a conference in Atlantic City. The conference, um, attending the conference were 187 rabbis, 1953. It was a conference of rabbis, and the topic of the conference was how can we fix boring prayer in the suburban synagogue? Um, this was the topic. And there were two speakers, uh, two main keynote speakers at the conference. Uh, the first speaker was Eugene Cohn, Rabbi Eugene Cohn, who was the co-editor, along with his more famous counterpart, Mordechai Kaplan, of the first Reconstructionist Sidur in the mid-1940s. Um, so he'd come out with a Sidur already, and this was a few years later in 1953. Um, and the, the other speaker was Abraham Joshua Heschel, who did not edit a Sidur, but had something to say about prayer. So uh, the topic again was, how could, we, um, how could we fix prayer? How could prayer be changed in the uh, American synagogue? And there were two approaches, one by Cohn, one by Heschel. Uh, does everyone have their eyeballs on, on one of these uh, sheets? Anyone missing? We're good? Okay, so if you look at the top, solution number one, this is the solution that was put forward by Eugene Cohn in that conference. He said, the traditional rituals must be studied as artistic forms of religious expression, which in every age need to be re-examined from the point of view of their truth and their relevance to the spiritual needs and interests of the times. Whatever is merely archaic and no longer awakens religious thought and emotion, even in those who are familiar with its traditional meaning, must be discarded. So what's the approach? What does Eugene Cohen say if you don't like a prayer, if it's... What do you do? Cut it, right? You take that red pen and you slash it. And in fact, every, uh, every age, right? In every age, you need to re-examine the prayer and see if it's relevant. And if it's not relevant or meaningful, then you get rid of it, okay? That's the approach. And if you do that, claimed Cohn, then if people were actually praying what they believed, then prayer would be meaningful because there would be no cognitive dissonance between what you say and what you think, all right? That's approach number one. Um, now, to, to do that approach, by the way, I should say, if you, if you follow that approach, you don't need me. You actually don't need anybody. You just need you. You need you and a pen and a, and a, and a scissors, right? And you figure out what you don't like, you cut it out, and you go on and say, say, the, say what remains, okay? Services could get a lot shorter. They might be different for everybody, but, but you don't need me to, 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 to do that exercise for you. Now, the second um, uh, night of the, of the conference, Heschel uh, offered his own take, and that's in the, in, the, in the second paragraph here, solution number two. Heschel said, the problem is not how to revitalize prayer. The problem is how to revitalize ourselves. Religious movements in our history have often revolved around the problem of liturgy. To Kabbalah and Hasidism, the primary problem was 
how to pray. To the modern movements, the primary problem was what to say. What has Hasidism accomplished? It inspired worship in a vast number of Jews. What have the moderns accomplished? They've inspired the publication of a vast number of prayer books. Right? And indeed, actually what separates denominations when it comes to synagogue really is which prayer book do you use? Right? What editorial decisions have you made that is going to mark you as a certain denomination? This is my belief and it's embodied in my prayer book. And indeed, every 20 years or less, there's another prayer book that comes out from each denomination. Um, Heschel already recognized this in the 50s. Let's go on. Let's skip down to where it says, this is our affliction. This is our affliction. We do not know how to look across a word to its meaning. We forgot how to find the way to the word, how to be on intimate terms with a few passages in the prayer book. Familiar with all words, we are intimate with none. The same word may evoke new understanding when read with an open heart. What we need is a sympathetic prayer book exegesis. Okay, exegesis means interpretation. Right? So Heschel is, is now saying, in contrast to Cohn, Cohn says what you need is to cut the words, a new sidur. And what Heschel says is you need to interpret the words. You need to have a sympathetic exegesis with the words. And once you go through that, because frankly, no matter what words you come up with, you're always going to be the stuck until you actually do something to yourself and change your relationship to the word. So that's um, what we're going to explore tonight. What would it mean to do a sympathetic prayer book exegesis, an interpretation of the prayer book um, that might lead to a different understanding, even of prayers that we're very familiar with? I should say, if this is your first, if you've never prayed in a Jewish service, um, hopefully, um, you know, we're going to go uh, step by step so you'll be right with me. And if you have prayed many times, we're going to hopefully open up new vistas in familiar, um, familiar words. Um, actually, the, 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 the prayer that we're going to look at is the first prayer of the Amida. We're going to try this out on the first blessing of the Amida. The Amida is a series of blessings. Depending on what day it is, you have either, somewhere between seven and we saw actually yesterday 24. That's an, uh, you know, unusual. On Rosh Hashanah and Musaf, you have nine. On Shabbat, you have seven. The weekday, you have 18. If you're living in our times, you have 19. But, we're, but all of them start the same way. They all start, the first blessing is always the same. So no matter when you go to Shul, if you ever show up to a Jewish prayer service, you will always encounter the Amida, and you will always encounter the first blessing of the Amida. Bang for your buck. Okay? That's what we're going to look at. Not only that, the rabbis in the Talmud said that you're supposed to have kavanah, you're supposed to have focus, intention, for the entire Amida. But if you can't have focus for the entire Amida, the minimum standard is the first blessing. If you can't make it through the first blessing with focus, you got to start again. Okay? Just in case you thought the rabbis were vindictive, they could have done it for the last blessing. <laughs> they have to start all over again at the end. But no, if you don't make it through the first blessing, you actually have to start again. That means that you need to have focus for that blessing. What is it about this blessing that's so key to the key prayer of Jewish prayer? That's what we're going to be looking at. And so while it's only sort of an eyedropper test on liturgy as a whole, it is a very important um, test case. Okay, so what I, I brought to you here on the bottom of page one, that first blessing of the Amida. Um, 
And I numbered it, I numbered it um, one through 10. Those are sort of my arbitrary line breaks, but, uh, but will we'll be e for ease of reference. I should note that uh, I'm going to say one important thing. I didn't write this blessing, OK? So if you don't like it, if there's a problem with it, don't blame me. I'm also going to say that it's the traditional uh, text of the Ashkenazi um, Sidur. Um, that is to say, um, there, there may be words that you say that are not in this blessing, but I'm, I'm, uh, for the purposes of this exercise, I'm taking the traditional text, okay? Um, so what I'm gonna ask you to do is, we're gonna spend just five minutes, those of you who learned the last couple uh, nights, this is what we, what we do, have an opportunity to read the prayer out loud. And I'm, uh, uh, in the past, I've asked you to ask questions. I invite you to ask any questions that you have about this prayer. What's unusual? What are the gaps? This is the first step in interpretation. Okay? We're going to interpret the prayer. When you interpret something, you have to figure out what's wrong with it so you can start to um, devise some uh, solutions. But we have to figure out what's unusual, what's strange, what doesn't make sense. And you can throw in there what, what do you like and what do you no, not like. Um, okay? So we're going to just take, take five minutes, just on page one, the box on the bottom, in the Hebrew or the English, read it out loud, ask questions about it, what do you like, what do you don't like. Turn to the person next to you, you're going to do it out loud. Those of you who are still working on it, you win. Because the slower you go, the more advanced you are. And if you, if you didn't finish, you will luckily have time to look at this in any Jewish prayer service you ever go to. So it's, it's going to be waiting for you again. Um, let me just take a couple of your questions. What were things that you noticed that stood out to you? A question that you had and, and which line? Yeah. Okay, can you phrase that as a question? Ah, okay. How is this supposed to help me be a better person? It seems to all be a praise about God. That's, I'm going to say that's a general question. Good. Now, other questions? You can refer to specific lines if you'd like. Yeah? Okay, good. Line number eight. Who brings a redeemer to his children's children? Who is that redeemer? Um, by the way, wh who do you think? What's the, what are the options? Mashiach. All right, so one possibility is Mashiach, Messiah. Okay, now, could you... Good, okay, maybe it's dependent on the generation. Who are the children's children? So maybe it's us. Who else could it be? Maybe it's a future. Who else could it be? Who are the, who are the what's the antecedent of B'nai Hem? Their children. Who's there? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Who are Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob's children? Well, there's us, but go back a little bit further. Let me ask you this way. Were the Jewish people ever redeemed? Who redeemed them? Moses, the children's children of... Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? It's generation six, Jacob's three, it's children's children's children, but okay, you get the idea? Right, so maybe God already brought a redeemer. 
Mevi Goel, it's a, it's, a, it's a participle. Who brings? Does that mean who brings a redeemer? Moses. Who brings a redeemer? The Messiah. Who brings a redeemer in every... It's, it's ambiguous, okay? But th- that's a, a good textual question, number eight. Okay, other, other questions, yeah? Good. Okay, line two. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Line 10, Abraham. What happened to Isaac and Jacob? Right? Sorry? I think if you look at it from Abraham, he's the shield of Abraham and down. Okay, so you want to say shield of Abraham, ellipses. They're included. All right. Good. Well, by the way, who else? Yeah, yeah. Other questions, please. Is this ascribing God's good deeds to simply God's own vanity? It's only for God's own namesake. Liman Shemo, line eight. Okay. Just because he's a vain God. Okay. Right. Good. For his namesake. By the way, if you're Eugene Cohn, I can already sense line eight is on the chopping block. (laughs) This line is not going to last. I can tell. Okay. Yeah. We're going to. Please. Yeah, in the back. Why are we blessing God? Oh, why are we blessing God? Okay, good. Now we have a whole question. What does it mean to bless God? What does blessed mean? Baruch. You don't have to go to line 10. You go to line 1. Baruch. Why is God... What does it mean for... Is it, am I do, is it an active verb? Is it a description? God is Baruch, just like God is Rahum. God is merciful. God is blessed. Am I blessing God? Am I describing God as blessed? Am I doing something here? Um, so that's a, a big question. By the way, just another textual question. How, you know a blessing. I know we have a problem with it. But tell me, give me a good Jewish blessing. What do you say on, on the bread? Give it to me. Baruch. Eloheinu. Melech haolam. What's missing here? Melech haolam. Where's melech haolam? You read line one. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu. Finish the sentence. You don't say ve'elohei avoteinu. Right? You say Melech HaOlam. So, in fact, the Talmud says that it's not a blessing until you mention God's kingship. So, where is the kingship of God? Okay? Now, where is it? Who found it? Line nine. nine. All right? It sneaks in there in line nine. But that is a long way away from line one. It's not how Hamotzi works. not Baruch HaTad, Unai Eloheinu, Hamotzi Lech, Aminar, it's Melech. Right? It doesn't work that way. So, why is the Melech hanging out in line nine? Okay? So these, oh, okay, maybe you're paying it. You, know, you notice the deviation, or maybe it precedes the rule. Okay, yeah. Uh, uh, another question, yeah. Good. Yes, this is huge. That's a great read. Notice the, pay attention in Jewish prayer. When are you speaking in second person, Baruch Atah, blessed are you, God, versus when are you speaking in third, per, third person, Liman Shemo? What should it have said? Not Liman Shemo, Liman Shemecha, right? Your name. So why the switch from second person to third person? By the way, the rest of the prayer is all in second person, right? Just that deviation of Liman Shemo. So what's going on there? You can play this game with the rest of the Amida, by the way. Um, almost all of the Amida is written in second person address, except sometimes you have third person, like Rofei Chole Amo Yisrael. Amo Yisrael, right? His people should have been your people. 
Hamvarech and Amo Yisrael Bashalom, the last blessing. Amo, so what do you mean Amo? It should be, it should be him. Good. Okay, good. But, but yes, and that, meaning there's a reason to choose third person over second person, but only a mixed up person chooses both. <laughs> In other words, I'm speaking to you, I'm talking to you, and then, I stop, and then I stop talking to you, I talk about you, and then I go back and I say, Baruch atah, I'm talking to you again. Right? That's what happens in line one through line seven. And then line eight, I turn over here and refer to God. Then on line 10, I'm back talking to God. So, so something's going on here with the but text. You okay? Said, you said the king yeah. should be Guf Rabim Guf Sheni Atem. Why is king plural? Uh-huh, uh-huh. The royal, the royal address the royal, yeah. should be in the plural. Yeah. Okay. I don't like the, the tra English translation of mine. It doesn't say anything about king. Well, they, uh, yeah, this, I took this translation from Ruben Kimmel. We're going to see in a second, but king is, is put at the end of the line there. Uh, although, yes. Which translators always edit. Oh, don't get me started. I've heard the translation is always interpretation. Luckily, we're doing interpretation. All right, let's do some interpretation. There are a lot more questions that we can ask. I want to encourage you to ask questions about prayers because that is really the first step of doing this exercise that Heschel recommends of creating a relationship with the words. How many times have you said, I never noticed. It was in third person, everything else is in second person. Or maybe you did notice it and you've always been wanting to say it. But the idea of, of actually stopping, looking, and asking questions that's the first step in creating that relationship. Now, we're not going to stay at the first step because we have a lot of core challenges to prayer, and we must solve them, and we only have a half an hour, okay? <laughs> so we got to get moving. Now, the way I want to do this is by saying that there is an approach to reading prayer, which I, I feel like is a wonderful approach to thinking about interpretation. If you're trying to turn the page, don't. It's still on page one, okay? Go up above the box. Above the box on page one, you haven't changed the page at all. This is Reuven Kimmelman, who's a professor at Brandeis, and he's talking about what's known as the literary method of, 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 of the Amida, the literary method of, of reading prayers. The meaning of the liturgy exists not so much in the liturgical text, per se, as in the interaction between the liturgical text and the biblical intertext. Meaning in the mind of the reader takes place between texts rather than within them. Now, let's say that in English, okay? So, so what Kimmelman is saying is, there are always two texts, okay? There's the text and the intertext. In our case, the text is the Siddur, is the prayer book, and the intertext, the text that the, that the primary text is referring to, is the Bible. Or to say it more plainly, I, I mentioned this the other night, the Siddur quotes the Bible. And you cannot understand the Siddur, says Kimmelman, until you understand what it's quoting and put those two texts up together and see them juxtaposed, okay? Until you do that, you really are only looking at half of the picture. So when you're going through a process of interpretation, we need to figure out what was the muse of the line that we're looking at and what did it come from in the Bible. Once we put those together, we can start to build a field of interpretation. That's what we're gonna do for a few of these lines. And along the way, we're going to hit some of these big questions. So let's just, let's start on line two. Okay, line two of the Amida. Elohei Abraham, Elohei Yitzchak, Elohei Yaakov. Now we already noticed, uh, Ari pointed out that Yitzchak and Yaakov are gone. Who else is missing? 
All right, matriarchs are, aren't there. Who else is missing? Joseph. Moses. Moses. Hey, if you're writing a prayer that you want to call about, um, that you want to call upon your ancestors for some merit, um, I don't know. Moses, he's a good one, right? He usually, actually, he uses prayer quite effectively. Who else might you have thrown in there? Elijah. Elijah, a great prayer. Excellent prayer. David wrote the book of Psalms. Okay, that's not bad. Where is he? Okay, how about, we talked about the matriarchs. What other woman would you put in there? Hannah? How about Hannah? You, you know why Hannah? I like Hannah for the Amida. Sorry? Because of her prayer. You know, the way that Hannah prayed was silent. Only her lips moved. That caused Eli, the high priest, to think that she was drunk. But, but the rabbi said, we say the Amida silently because of the way that Hannah prayed, Hannah. Hannah prayed silently, so we also pray silently. It would have been nice to have Hannah in the prayer, right? Okay, so why is it Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? If you're going to choose your top three biblical characters for prayer, or Abraham, I'll, I'll give you Abraham, right? Isaac, okay. So what we need to understand is, okay, remember, there's the text and an intertext. This is a quote from the Bible. So now you can turn over the page, okay? Turn over the page to page two. Where is this coming from? It's coming from Exodus 3. Okay? God said, Do not come closer. Remove your shoes from your feet, for the, pl the place on which you stand is holy ground. He said, I am the God of your father. Anuchi Elohei Avicha. Elohei Abraham, the God of Abraham. Elohei Tzchak, the God of Isaac. Elohei Yaakov, the God of Jacob. Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Where are we in the biblical story? The burning bush. Right? The burning bush. Now, how did Moses get to the burning bush? Where is he in his ark? If Ari was going to introduce him as the CSP scholar, what's the resume he has at this point in chapter 3 of Exodus? Yeah, okay, he's a refugee from Egypt. <laughs> Sorry? Good, former prince, current shepherd. Right? How did he move from prince to shepherd? He killed an Egyptian taskmaster, okay? It's an anger problem. So, right? And where is, he, where is he now? Where is he doing his shepherding? Where's his business? In Midian. Where's Midian? All right, now, this is, uh, now you're going to have to help me because the story of the Torah, okay, on one foot. We have, we have Canaan. We have Egypt, Okay. We're going to be moving back and forth between those two places. That's the story of the Torah. You know where Midian is? It's over here. Nobody moves into Midian back and forth. This is like the South County. Help me. I don't know. This is like the Mojave Desert. No, no one's going there, okay? In New York, we would say this is like Staten Island, okay? You can't get there by the subway, right? Now, Moses is hanging out in Midian. What's his family situation in Midian? He got married. Who did he marry? Zipporah. Who's she? The daughter of the chief priest. Okay? Jethro, Yitro. Okay? So Moses is, at, in chapter 3 of Exodus, I would say, an alienated Jew. <laughs> Pretty much about as alienated as you could get. Right? He ran away from his people and his family. He's hanging out with a family and religion that has nothing to do with his people, in a land that has nothing to do with his people, and he's walking around with sheep. And guess what? He loves it. He's having a great time. 
There is nothing that could take him away from that. When God shows up and says, you know, I, what, what, is, what happens after this scene? God reveals God's self and then God says, go back to Egypt and take the Jewish people out and bring them to the, the land of Canaan. And Moses says, no. Right, right. He, he says, no. Um, I can't speak, right? Send anybody else but me. I do not want to do this, right? That's not who I want to do. He is an alienated Jew. The, the, I don't know, the outreach corps, the federation, they found his address, right? They're showing up at the door. Come, it's free. No, I don't want to go, right? The Midrash says that Moses and, and, and God argued at the burning bush for seven days, a whole week. They fought about whether or not Moses was going to go. And finally, Aaron shows up on the scene and they make a compromise and, and Moses heads back. Okay, so what, 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 um, what's important for us is what's the, what, um, what is the, 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 the tie back into the prayer is this quote, Elohei Abraham, Elohei Yitzchak, Elohei Yaakov. God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob. How is it used in Exodus 3? Who says it? God says it to Moses. What's the purpose of God saying this? Don't we, doesn't God know that God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Why do I have to tell God that God is the God? No, God isn't telling, we're not telling God. Good, God is introducing God's self to Moses and not only introducing himself, he's introducing Moses to his family, his past. Hey Moses, you have ancestors. Their names are Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They're not related to Jethro, right? You have a past that you've run away from. That's part of what the encounter is at the burning bush. Now, we're saying the Amida, okay? What do we say when we say, Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu Elohei Avoteinu. By the way, Elohei Avoteinu is just Elohei Avicha. But, but the, the, the address has changed. But the word is the same. So from Elohei Avicha, Elohei Avraham, Elohei Tzach, Elohei Yaakov, I'm just quoting God. Now I'm Moses. But I'm not Moses who splits the sea. I'm Moses who's the alienated Jew. You thought you were an alienated Jew. You're nowhere near as alienated as Moses, okay? That guy has you beat, right? So um, what would it mean to stand in prayer? Is what does it mean to me? I'm not describing God. That's not the point. I am stepping into the shoes or the not shoes of Moses at the burning bush. And God is reestablishing a relationship with me. And actually, the first thing that you say in prayer is not something that humans said, but God said. You're just quoting something that God says. And you're quoting it to a person that we might be able to identify with or know people who could identify with, that Moses of chapter three of Exodus, okay? So part of the exercise here is to think about what are the ways in which the biblical quote, first of all, introduces a character we didn't know was in this prayer, but is certainly central, which is Moses. And also, how do I relate to the scene of the burning bush, which is being directly quoted right here in the first, or the second line of the Amida as we've numbered them, okay? That's one, uh, one line, okay? We're gonna do a few more lines because we have a few more minutes, okay? So let's do a second line. This is the repetition for the, the people who like or don't like repetition. Line three, you can go back to the first page if you want. Um, the great, mighty, and awesome God. Ha'el, ha'gadol, ha'gibor, v'hanorah. The great, mighty, and awesome God, right? Now, y'all would say, why do you have to say great, mighty, and awesome? Why don't you just say great, or mighty, or awesome? What's the point of saying all three of them, right? What's the great, mighty, and awesome God? So we're gonna look at a little story of somebody who had the opposite approach, okay? 
who didn't want to stop at great, mighty, and awesome. Um, this, he would not get a job today um, in a synagogue. There was one, um, page three. Page three, text number two. Story from the Talmud. There was once one who prayed the Amida before Rabbi Hanina, and he said, the great, mighty, awesome, powerful, strong, courageous God. Okay? Now, what's, what's wrong with that? What do you think? Good idea? Why not? If I can call God strong, why wouldn't I call God, uh, if I can call God great, why wouldn't I call God strong or courageous? What's wrong? Where do you stop? Ah! Oh! Hey, you want to play the game of using adjectives to describe God? Well, there's only one problem. You thought Shul was long now. What if you went till infinity? Because that's what it would take to describe God, right? So let's see how you're now going to play Rabbi Hanina. Rabbi Hanina said to the, the prayer leader, have you finished all the possible praise of your master? Were not that they were written by Moses in the Torah and affixed by the men of the great assembly, get back to those guys, we would not even say those three descriptions. But you go on saying all of these? It may be compared to a human king who had thousands upon thousands of gold coins and people praised him for owning silver. Isn't that a terrible degradation of him? Right? What's the, the, what's the, main, the main objection here? More is, right. More, less is more and more is worse. Call him Osif Gorea, right? When you add, you actually take away. Um, now, there, um, what's the reason? Now, that makes sense to me. By the way, the Rambam uses this text in the Talmud to justify his approach to describing God, which is, you can only say things that God is not. Well, negative theology, right? You can only describe what God isn't. We actually don't know anything about what God is. We know what God isn't, okay? But what's the problem here? We're still left with Ayal's repetition. Why do we say great? I just said we can't describe God. So why do I say great, mighty, and awesome? I shouldn't have said anything. But these are the only adjectives, straight up adjectives in the blessing. The rest are, what's a verb that's an adjective? A gerund? Something like that, right? Mevi, who brings, is different from gadol, big, right? That describes an action, who brings a redeemer versus a state of being. So why can I say great, mighty, and awesome, according to Rabbi Hanina? It's in the Torah. Moses wrote it. That's why I can say it. Okay? So again, Kimmelman's idea that for every prayer text, there's an intertext in the Bible, that's being played out right here. So now you know what we're going to do? We're going to look to see where it is in the Bible. I should say this. If you space out for the rest of the night, you don't hear anything else. This is all you got to walk away with. Where is the prayer from? The Bible. <laughs> okay? If you think you understand the prayer, you don't until you check it out in the Bible. That's the main idea. All right, now you can go back to your spacing. Okay? So look at it, page three. Second text on page three. Deuteronomy, the book that Moses wrote. This is where it comes from. For God your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, mighty, and awesome God. Who, let's stop there for a second. If I hope you didn't read ahead. If I say to you, the great, mighty, and awesome God, what do you think God did to, to get great, mighty, and awesome title? Created the world? Redeemed the Jews? Split the sea? Okay, let's see what it says here. The great, mighty, and awesome God who, 
shows no favor and takes no bribe, who does justice for the orphan and widow, and loves the stranger providing him with food and clothing. You too must love the stranger, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. Okay? What does it mean for God to be great, mighty, and awesome according to Deuteronomy? Human. 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 A, a human we would all aspire to. Right? To be a mensch. To be ethical. To be fair. And, and fair not only to the, the, um, the person of your own socioeconomic status who you chum around with, but the most vulnerable members of society. The orphan, the widow, the stranger. Right? This is the... Israel. Isn't it all about Israel? Right? This is the gear. This is the, the stranger, the not member of the tribe that you need to love. You need to love him. You need to love the stranger. Why? Because you were strangers in the land of Egypt. By the way, I should say, when God creates the world, when God splits the sea, what's my relationship to that act? I'll put that in the category of things I can't do. Right? <laughs> I can't create the world. I can't split the sea. I can't redeem any people. Can I take care of the widow, orphan, and stranger? Yes. And I must. The Torah tells you this is what you have to do in case you missed the connection, right? You are supposed to imitate God. God acts. You're supposed to act in the same way. So now let's bring it back to the prayer, right? The prayer I'm saying, God is ha'el agadol agibor v'hanorah. I am not, I want to argue, just heaping adjectives onto God. That doesn't work, said Rabbi Hanina and the Rambam. And doesn't God know that God is great, mighty, and awesome? But if I realize that I'm quoting Moses in Deuteronomy, who's reminding me one verse later that I have to love the stranger, then all of a sudden when I say this line in the Amida, what I'm thinking about potentially is, how am I doing on loving the stranger? When I say God is great, mighty, and awesome, I ask myself, how am I doing in relating to the vulnerable members of society, the orphan, widow, and, and stranger? So Support? Why not just say God who loves the orphan, the widow, and the stranger? Um, so why not just say it explicitly? Right. So I think part of the answer to that, it's a little frustrating, right? I mean, if they just give it to us, right? But I think part of that is to recognize that prayer is poetry. It's elusive, A. You know, and it's, it's, being it's alluding to things. And that can be a frustrating mode, but it's a mode that we're familiar with, right? Anybody who, you know, listens to hip hop or, or any kind of po po poetry that you connect to, it's not in your face. It's not prose, right? It's poetry. Um, and I think it also allows for some form of interpretation. Right? If it was just simply dogma, you know, um, don't be alienated, remember your ancestors, you know, love the stranger, that's a little less lyrical, you know, than maybe a, po a poem. Now, you might say I could write a better poem, but you have to understand what the style of the poem is. The style is, I am quoting the Bible. That's how this, po that's how this poetic system works, okay? Do you want to see another line? Should we look at another line? All right, let's look at another line. I happen to have one here for you. Actually, <clears throat> well, <clears throat> oh, it's so hard, we have to make a choice. Um, okay. Um, do you want to talk about God, uh, the problem of evil, or do you want to talk about non-Jews in the Amida? Evil non-Jews. <laughs> non okay. <clears throat> all right. Let's do that. Let's do page four. All right. Page four. Now, 
I mentioned to you that Eugene Cohn, his approach was to cut from the Sidur. Um, what we, because of something that he objects to. Now we see in this selection we're gonna look at is the way in which the rabbis also embodied that. And it's just amazing to watch them do this. So it's worth it. Hopefully, we'll see how much time we have. Okay. Rabbi Simon, so I'm on the top of page four. Rabbi Simon said in the name of Rabbi Yeshua ben Levi. Now remember I said in that previous text there, were the, there was Moses and the men of the great assembly. So now we're gonna look at the men of the great assembly for a second. Why were they called the men of the great assembly, Anshe Knesset Agdola, or the great men of the assembly. Why were they, what was so great about them? Answer, because they returned greatness to its earlier place. Get it? Okay, not exactly. We're gonna have a sub story that's gonna explain that. Why were they called great? They returned greatness to its earlier place. Now let's look at this sub story. Rebbe Pinchas, okay, Rebbe Pinchas, a rabbi in the Talmud, he says, oh, you know what? The prayer is a quote from the Bible. What I want to do is look through the Bible and find every time in the Bible it says, great, mighty, and awesome. Describes God as great, mighty, and awesome. And here's what he comes up with. He notices that it comes twice, and it comes two other times almost. Okay? So, and he, he spins out this following amazing um, teaching. Rabbi Pinchas said, Moses established the form of the Amida, the great, mighty, and awesome God. We already saw that. That's in Deuteronomy. Moses said, Now, Jeremiah said, the great and mighty God, but did not say awesome. But he didn't say the word nora. Now, why did he say mighty? Why did he say gibor? One who can watch the destruction of his house and be quiet is fittingly called mighty. Come back to that in a second. Why didn't he say awesome? Why did he cut the word nora? Because only the temple is awesome, as it says. Awesome is God from his sanctuary, from his mikdash, his temple. Okay? Now, what's just a quick review of Jewish history? When is Jeremiah living? What's the main current event in Jeremiah's life? The destruction of the first temple. Okay? He watches that with his eyes. So he, wa he looks out his window, and he says, you know what? God, I can't call you awesome anymore. I'm sorry. The word Norah is only applicable when your temple is standing and I just saw it burn to the ground. So I'm not going to say Norah anymore. I'm just going to say Ayala Gadola Gibor. Period. Okay? Jeremiah, the first Reconstructionist Jew. Okay? <laughs> he was a from guy also. Okay? Now, he cuts the word Norah, but what does he do to the word Gibor? Gibor here does not mean who protects the widow, orphan, and stranger like it did in Deuteronomy. What does it mean here? You're mighty, you're a hero. Ezehu Gibor. Who is a hero from Pirkei Avod? Hakoveshet Yitzro, the one who conquers his will. God conquered God's will. God wanted to intervene, you see, and stop the destruction. But God overcame that desire and held back. Now you can read that as Jeremiah being pious, like God really did want to step in, but what do you know, we had to learn a lesson. You know why the first temple, you know why the second temple was destroyed, right? Baseless hatred. You know why the first temple was destroyed? Whoa. First temple was destroyed because of the three primary sins. Murder, adultery, and idolatry. Okay? Not such a good, the, the Pew study was a lot worse. 
okay? It's like a score low on the ethics there, okay? So what do you know? God had to let the, the temple be destroyed, even though God wanted to step in. So you could say Jeremiah was saying this um, sort of piously, or maybe Jeremiah was, was saying it cuttingly, like, God, you're, you're really mighty. You're so mighty that in the very moment we needed you to step into history, you held back. Thanks a lot. You know, with that kind of might, I'll, I'll go with, uh, with awesome, please. Um, so that's Jeremiah. Now look at the next one down, Daniel. Daniel said, the great awesome God, but he didn't say mighty. But he didn't say the word gibor. Okay? Now when is Daniel living? Babylonian. He's in exile. He's two, three generations after Jeremiah. He's not watching any destruction. They've already been exiled. He's sitting there in the middle of exile. So what does he say? He says, his sons have been captured and imprisoned. So where's his might? Daniel looks out his window and he says, I'm living in exile. I can't say the word gibor. I'm sorry, I'm cutting it. Daniel, the second reconstructionist Jew. Okay? He cuts the word gibor. But he restores the word norah. He does say the word awesome. Why does he say awesome? For the awesome things, norah, that God did for us in the fiery furnace, he's fittingly called awesome. Right? Now, I think what Daniel's struggling with here is an amazing sort of post-destruction dilemma. This is our generation. We're not the destruction generation, if you bring this to the modern period. We're the post-destruction generation. So on the one hand, the Jewish people, they're in chains. I can't call God, you know, Gibor. I'm not going to do it. But I experienced some miracle in my life. I was saved from the fiery furnace. I can't deny that. So I'm going to call God Norah. On the one hand, the Jewish people are suffering. On the other hand, something good happened to me. And that's what Daniel's struggling with. It's a post-survivor experience, right? Something good is in my life, even though the Jewish people as a whole are suffering. Now, the end of the text, when the men of the great assembly arose, they returned greatness to its earlier place, the great, mighty, awesome God. Now, to understand this, we have to understand this is a quote from Nehemiah, Nehemiah. Nehemiah was one of the men, in the rabbinic imagination, one of the men of the great assembly. Where was Nehemiah? Where is he in, in Jewish history? I'm getting more obscure. It's harder. The history questions. The return. He's back. Ezra, Nehemiah, they go back. He's in the land of Israel. He's back. They're restored. He can say the full line. Okay? So now what do we do when we say this line? Who are we quoting? Are we quoting Moses? Moses is the one who said, love the, the, the stranger. Are we quoting Nehemiah, the return after thousands of years, in their case, hundreds of years of exile? Or are we quoting Jeremiah? E either way, we're quoting the full text. But we've lived through a history where Jeremiah and Daniel have been through destruction and cut words. In this text, there is a time to cut words. And there's a time to restore the words, right? So which time are we living in? That's the question that we have to face. Are we living in the return? Are we living in a time after the destruction? Or are we still experiencing it the way that Jeremiah and Daniel were? Right? But what you see here is the sensitivity the rabbis had to you have to pray something that you see. You can't lie. You have to actually report what's going on in your own life. Even Nehemiah didn't go back to Moses. God isn't really loving the widow, orphan, and stranger. We don't see that. We may love the widow, orphan, and stranger, but God isn't sort of intervening and taking care of the widow. We don't see that anymore. 
So even though the word stayed the same, the interpretation changed. The word gibor changed. Changed in interpretation. Same word, different interpretation. Right? I think it's a powerful text. All right. Now in our remaining time, we're just going to look at, um, at the, last, uh, the last line. What do we have? We have three minutes, five minutes? Okay. You want to do, you want to do quickly the non-Jews or no? Yeah. Quickly? We'll do it quickly. All right, quickly. Here we do. The non-Jews. We said this is what the name of this blessing is. You know what it's called? Avot. Ancestors. Okay? That's a, a particularist approach. But I'm going to tell you, there's a non-Jew. This gets to El Elyon. There's a non-Jew hiding in this blessing. To find the non-Jew hiding, turn with me. It's like a where's Waldo. Turn with me to page five. Okay? The top of page five. On page five at the top, what I brought you is another version of the first blessing of the Amida. But this was not published by one of the modern movements. This was a version of the Amida that was discovered in the Cairo Geniza. Cairo Geniza was the storehouse of Jewish texts. They found 200,000 Jewish manuscripts. This was in the, uh, the turn of the 19th century. Solomon Schechter brought them to light, brought them to Cambridge in England. And what they found, 200,000, 100,000 of them were Sidurim. They found 100,000 prayer texts, okay? What they found was there was another tradition of davening that they didn't know about before. There's the one that we all know, no matter if you're Ashkenaz, Sfard, Chabad, Moroccan, Yemenite, you're all davening something comes out of the Babylonian Talmud. But there was another Amida that came out of the Jerusalem Talmud. And that's the Amida that I brought for you here at the top of page five. Now look at it for a second. The first line, the second line, the third line are exactly the same. Nothing changes. Now go with me to the fourth line. God Most High, Creator of Heaven and Earth. Line five, Our shield, the shield of our ancestors, our security in every generation. And then line seven is the same as our line 10, Blessed are you, God, shield of Abraham. What's the difference between this Amida and our Amida? Line eight, gone, <laughs> right? The Redeemer, not there. Third person, not there. For his namesake, gone, okay? It's just not there. Now, what else do you notice here? Yeah, creator of heaven and earth. Now, do you, does that line sound familiar to you? Where do you know it from in the liturgy? Friday night, right before Magena Vod. Do you know what Magena Vod is? It's a repetition of the Amida, okay? Magena Vod, like Magena Avraham. Michaye Meitim, like Michaye Meitim. Ha'el HaKadosh, like Ha'el HaKadosh, okay? So it's working through the ends of each of the blessings, but it's introduced by a paragraph. And the paragraph happens to be the Amida from the Cairo Geniza, the Amida from Eretz Israel. But this is, if you spaced out for the last two minutes, don't worry, because this is what you need to know. El Yon Konesh is a direct quote from the Bible, okay? El Yon comes in the Bible a number of times. But Elohim Konesh Amayim Va'aretz comes in the Bible only once. The Ten Sayings? Ten Commandments. No, no, not in the Ten Commandments. We're going to see it, though, right? Now, I should say, Elohim Konesh Amayim Va'aretz is hiding in our Amida as well. How does our Amida go? Elohim, Gomel Chasadim Tobim, Ve Konei Hakol. 
everything is the same as Shamayim Varetz. Shamayim Varetz is a merism. It means from heaven to earth, everything in between. So somebody jumbled up this perfectly good biblical quote in our Amidah. But all the old texts of the Amidah, even in the Babylonian tradition, all said, And it stayed in our Friday night service. Okay? So where is And who's the hiding non-Jew? Turn to the last page, page six. Now here we're in um, chapter 14 of Genesis. In chapter 14 of Genesis, Avram, Abraham, before he gets that extra letter, Abraham is going off to rescue his nephew Lot, who got captured in war. And in order for, uh, for um, Avram to go get Lot, he has to fight a war with other kings. It's the battle of the four kings versus the five kings. So Avram allies himself with the king of Sodom. All right? Now, if you're a good biblical character, do you want to ally yourself with the king of Sodom? No, right? Sodom only has three more chapters, and then it's going to be obliterated, right? Okay? Now, by the way, you know the name of the king of Sodom? You know what his name is? Sorry? No, no, he's another guy we're going to see in a second. But the king of Sodom, he's not named in this selection. His name is Bira, evil. Okay? His name is King Evil. Sometimes the Bible is not subtle. All right? And the, the names mean something. Okay? So let's look, let's look at this selection here for a second. So when Avram returned from defeating Khadar Laomer and the kings with him, by allying himself with the king of Sodom, the king of Sodom came out to meet Avram in the valley of Shaveh, which is the valley of the king. Okay? Avram and, and king of Sodom, evil, are going to come up and divide the spoils of war. That's what's about to happen. But out of left field comes another fellow. His name is Malkitzedek. And Malkitzedek, king of Shalem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of El Elyon, to God Most High. He blessed Avram, saying, Blessed be Avram, Baruch Avram, Le'el Elyon, Konesh Blessed be Avram, to God Most High, creator of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your foes into your hand. And he gave him a tenth of everything. Now, what do we know about Malkitzedek? By the way, Malkitzedek then walks off Stage right, stage left, which one is it? You go off. Stage right. And then <clears throat> he never shows up again. This is his big moment, okay? No small part. Um, what is, do we like Maki Tzedek? Why? How do I know I like him? His name. What's his name? King Justice. What's he the king of? Shalem. What does Shalem mean? Wholeness, peace, city. I'm King Justice, King of Wholeness, Peace City. Do you like me? You do like me. I'm positive. The rabbis read Shalem as Yerushalayim, right? As Jerusalem. Jerusalem isn't mentioned in the Torah. It's mentioned in the Bible. It's not mentioned in the Torah. But this is a hint to it, okay? So Malki Tzedek shows up, and he says, Baruch Avram le'eloyon konesh He introduces the phrase, Eloyon konesh Now, let's see what happens after he leaves. Then the king of Sodom says to Avram, give me the people and take the possessions for yourself. Right? Let's divide up the spoils. And Avram said to the king of Sodom, I swear to Hashem, El Elyon Konesh I will not take so much as a thread or a sandal strap of what is yours. You shall not say it is I who made Avram rich. Right? What does Avram do? Avram says, I'm not taking any money from the king of Sodom. I'd rather risk poverty then do business with this guy, okay? Instead, 
How does he know? By the way, how does he say that he means business? He takes an oath. What does he use as the name of God? He's putting his hand on the Bible and saying the name of God. Exactly. He quotes Malkitzedek. He takes word for word what Malkitzedek said three verses earlier. And what does he do to change it? He tacks on Adonai. Tacks on Yudei Vavhe. This is a classic Jewish move. You like something in non-Jewish society. You make it a little Jewish, right? It's the melody of Hatikva. It's the German beer song we sing, right? These are the things that we do, okay? We take this phrase, we made it Jewish. Now, let's bring it back to our Amida. Who are we quoting in our Amida? Malkitzedek. Anyone want to argue for Avram? You might, you might say we're quoting Avram, but because you, if you do an ellipsis, Baruch Adonai, dot, 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 But straight up, we are quoting Malki Tzedek. There are only 10 lines in our Amida. Malki Tzedek got one of them, okay? Malki Tzedek, King Justice, King of Wholeness City, a non-Jew, right? But a righteous non-Jew, one who we can learn from, one who gives Avram a moment of strength before he faces the King of Sodom, a not righteous Jew, okay, and squares off with him. So Malki Tzedek is right there in our Amida, and we are quoting him. Now let's move to the last line of the Amida, okay? Baruch Hashem Magen Avraham, blessed are you God, shield of Abraham. We said, where's Isaac and Jacob? Also, why shield? Why that verb? Is it, what, what does it mean, a shield? Yeah, is it like protection? By the way, is it like a shield, like arrows flying into the shield? You know, another word for this, it works in English as well. You know, magain comes from the same Hebrew word as gan. Gan means garden. Just like to guard and garden are actually etymologically related. Okay? So magain could be a little softer. But why, why does it say magain Avraham? Answer? Thank you. It's a quote from the Bible. It is a quote from the Bible. Okay? Let's look at the place where it is quoted from the Bible, it happens to be the next chapter of Genesis, right on the page you're on, page six, okay? With this, we're gonna end. Go down to the bold, after those things. Correct, after those things, the word of Hashem came to Avram in a vision saying, don't fear Avram, I am a shield for you. Your reward will be very great, okay? Now, what is Avram afraid of? Let's find, but if I say to you, don't fear. How are you feeling? Fearful. <laughs> okay, so you can try that with any law, by the way. Don't commit adultery. Okay, so <laughs> don't fear, Avram. I am a shield for you. Avram said, Lord Hashem, what can you give me, seeing that I shall die childless? And the one in charge of my household is Damasek Eliezer. Avram said, since you've granted me my, no offspring, my steward will be my heir. Right? What's Avram afraid of? I, I'm supposed to have kids. I'm not getting any younger. You told me back in chapter 12 I was going to have kids. You said I was going to have so many kids. I don't have any kids. And this guy, Domestic Eliezer, is going to inherit everything. He's like my, my servant. Okay? The word of Hashem came to Avram saying, No, that one shall not be your heir. None but your very own issue shall be your heir. You're going to have a kid. He took him outside and said, Look toward heaven and count the stars if you're able to count them. And he added so shall your offspring be. And because he put his trust in Hashem, he reckoned it to his merit. How does God respond? God says, you know what? On chapter 12, I made you a promise. I said you were going to have a kid. 
And right now, in chapter 15, I'm going to renew that promise with you. You are going to have a kid. Okay? So Avram is, is saying, I'm, where's my kid? And God says, you're going to have a kid. Now, there were two promises made to, to Avram in chapter 12. One was the kid. The other is, where are my APAC people here? The land, the land, you get the land, okay? You get the kid, you get the land, okay? So God says, in the last paragraph, God said to him, I'm going to renew that promise as well. I am God who took you out from Ur Kasdim to assign this land, Canaan, to you as a possession. And Avram said, Lord Hashem, how shall I know that I am to possess it? Now, how would you describe Avram's state of mind in this dialogue? Skeptical, doubting, right? In fact, well, the word that Avram says twice is ma, mati tainli, bama'ida, what? The amazing thing is, the very first time that Avram speaks to God is right here. They've been hanging out together for three chapters, but the very first time that Avram says anything to God is ma, what? What are you going to give me? By what shall I know? Okay? Now, what I want to do here is to note, if I woke you up in the middle of the night, or if I stopped a Jew in the middle of the street, and I said, tell me something Abraham did. What's his resume? What's he known for? First Jew, yeah. What else? Hospitality, good. What else? The idols. What? Walking the land. How about ready to sacrifice his son, right? So full of faith that he's ready to kill his only son that he had when he was in his 90s, right? How about that, Avram, the white knight of faith? What's the, what's the Avram that we see here? Skeptical, doubting, wondering, fearful. Ah, oh, here's an Avram I can relate to. This is a guy I recognize, okay? And what, what does God do? God says, Avram, don't be afraid. I'm a shield for you. And Avram takes that cue and then says, here are all the things I'm afraid about. Here's everything I'm worried about. God, but note, Avram had a problem believing in God, and he was talking to God. <laughs> you understand? He had a faith problem, even though he was in dialogue with God. And, and what God says is, I am going to shield you. In that moment of shielding, Avram feels safe to spill out all the things he's worried about, all of his ma, all of his what. Now, take that back to our Amida. When we say, Baruch Atah Hashem, Magain Avraham, shield of Abraham, when you quote this selection from the Bible, you are then ready to spill out all of your, all of our anxieties and fears and concerns and doubts. Prayer is not for the faithful. Prayer is for the doubting, the people who are wondering, the people who are saying, I'm not getting any younger and my promise isn't fulfilled. You're quoting Abraham, right? So when you put it all together in the Amida, we have Moses of chapter 3, the one who's alienated, run away from his people. We have Abram of chapter 15 of Genesis, who is afraid, who's skeptical, doubting. And prayer, which is calling upon both of those, only when you look to the Bible and notice that's what it's quoting, is actually reserved for the people who identify with some of those feelings. A feeling of alienation, a feeling of separation, a feeling of wonder, in a, in a sort of negative way and a feeling of doubt. But that doesn't mean that you're completely walled off from prayer. It only means that it's the beginning of the opportunity to repair that relationship. 
So my goal here is not to sell you on all these interpretations. My goal here really is to say that prayer, when opened up, can mean something different than we think it might mean at first glance. And when we open it up to the Bible, when we look at the way in which the Bible is being used as a quote, it might give us another way in to the experience of prayer. Stop here. So I wanted to thank you all. Many of you had an opportunity to unlock prayers three times. You've got one more chance tomorrow before he flies back all the way to the East Coast. But if you clap real loud, maybe he'll come back and teach us some more.